Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. For most households, I think maybe it was all households surveyed, that financial literacy, she might have used financial capacity here, but financial literacy, that is knowing how financial concepts work, did not make a difference. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. This is Jason Wadigan here. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Uh, This episode, the last of my uh, consecutive series of conference episodes, uh, we're going to have one uh, life insurance credit for each jurisdiction, except I'm going to clarify here, British Columbia. Um, I'm a little concerned. I have to make sure that we're doing this well for BC. And I think it's wise only to do a half credit for BC. Um, They've come up with some clarification around their CE rules there. So half a life insurance credit for BC. For Alberta, one life and a half an ANS credit. Uh, there's a fair bit of uh, accident sickness relevant content here, uh, specifically a couple of sessions on the impact of getting sick with a home equity line of credit in place. Um, and be good for an IAS credit, a financial planning credit from FP Canada, an IROC professional development credit, and an MFDA financial planning process credit. Um, I want to just comment on audio quality. I've recorded all of this without my headset, so the audio quality is a little shaky. Um, I think it's still okay. Let me know if it's so bad that I shouldn't do this again. Um, I was just, I was on the road and I didn't have everything that I needed with me. And then my um, other comment here is around the object. And I thought I recorded this somewhere. I just can't see it in the recordings. You'll see it over my um, left shoulder for much of the episode, not like where I am right now. Um, you'll see the Washington Monument. So the object for today is the Washington Monument, as you'll see over my left shoulder for much of the episode. Thanks very much and uh, enjoy your continued studies. Good morning. It's uh, Jason Watt here, and I'm at another conference, yet another conference, as uh, Scott Terrio pointed out on Twitter. Um, and if you want to see the live feeds from the conference or whatever, check out my Twitter feed, and you'll see that from both the, well, now all three, so at the um, Financial Therapy Association Conference, the Institute for Institute of Advanced Financial Planners Conference, and now this conference, the CFP Board Academic Research Colloquium, I've been pretty good about every session. I'll take a photo of some irrelevant slide or and or something like that, and the presenter themselves, and I'll tweet with the conference hashtag um, some tidbit from the conference. It's a good way to see, like, if you want to see what's happening at these conferences, and I. I'm going to credit um, Aravind on Twitter for showing me how to do this um, from the Future Proof Conference that he attended. So thanks, Aravind, for that. Okay, Um, this is the CFP board. This is the U.S. equivalent of FP Canada, and they host a research conference every year. So in the United States, and there there was a previous episode about this. I actually had uh, Tanya Staples and Ryan Laverty on back in season one, reporting live from an earlier version of this conference, 
I'm actually, Tanya's at this conference here um, this week as well, but she has her teenage son with her, so I didn't want to uh, enlist her aid. I know she's plenty busy with uh, with Julian, who's here, which is great. I think that's, uh, you know, when you go to these conferences, um, as I've done in the past, bring a spouse along or a kid along and um, really make a little bit of a holiday of it as well. Although this one, I'm traveling solo. Okay, so... The uh, conference started off with the address from, as you usually get, uh, from a bunch of senior staff at the CFP board. And um, I just wanted to comment here. I was surprised at this, actually. I always uh, think that the U.S. market is so much different than the Canadian market. If I understand this statistic correctly, uh, 12.5% of folks who wrote the U.S. CFP exam in 2021 uh, came out of a degree program. Um, which I don't think is that much different than Canada. I always assumed, honestly, that uh, the vast majority of new CFPs in the U.S. were fresh college grads, um, but doesn't sound like that's the case. So I will have to dig into that statistic a little bit more. Uh, 336 registered programs, that's 336 uh, degree-granting institutions in the U.S. that offer uh, training to lead to the ability to write the CFP exam. That's monster. That's a lot more than obviously we have in Canada. And that number was like 163 the last time I heard it, which was probably four years ago. Okay, uh, the keynote address was uh, Justin Fitzpatrick from uh, Income Lab. And Income Lab is um, essentially like a third-party research institute that does primarily around retirement income, but a bunch of support to financial planners. And I talked about this also from the Financial Therapy Association conference where we talked about e-money, but Justin is um, essentially an academic who's gone into the private sector to uh, provide research for investment firms, insurance firms, RIAs, that kind of thing. And he talked about modeling retirement income and the challenges here. This was quite good. And you can see the benefit. He's What he's trying to do is take all this academic research that we see here and blend that in to something an advisor can actually use in practice. A couple neat things here. Um, he talked about uh, a sort of different version of the retirement smile. I'll talk about the retirement smile more in a minute. Um, or this is the um, go-go, slow-go, no-go retirement model. But he talked about Little Dipper, Big Dipper, Big Bang, sort of in your first chunk of retirement, you're going to see the Little Dipper. So start off with lots of spending, drop that down, then that spending is going to really drop down in that Big Dipper model. And then Big Bang is sort of the the big healthcare needs at the end, which would be more prevalent in the US than in Canada, but not to be overlooked in Canada. Okay, he also talked about the causes of outrage. And this was pretty interesting. So he said that when we look at the things that outrage people, so this is like the ripped from today's headlines, uh, that's a good indicator as well for what's going to um, sort of frame success or, and use the word failure here, maybe adjustment. This was a common theme throughout the presentations, but the idea that how does the client perceive whether their financial plan is working or not, and this framing around, you know, if it causes uh, a big shock versus, you know, a small sort of insipid shock over the long term, you know, the, the small insipid shock is not as likely to cause the, it might cause the plan to fail, but it won't be perceived to cause the plan to fail. Oh, by the way, I'm outside here on the top, on the rooftop and, uh, you can't see it. It's quite foggy this morning as it happens to do in Washington, DC, but, uh, if I were to uh, clear this fog, you would see the Washington Monument sort of back just over this shoulder here. And by the way, that will be our object for today's episode, the Washington Monument, the now invisible Washington Monument is our object. Okay. Uh, he talked also about a retiree superpower. And I guess this is a recurring theme with Income Lab, but he said this ability to adjust. So he sort of compared the retiree to, let's say, a pension fund or another institutional investor. And I thought this was pretty neat where he said, really, that retiree, and again, this is a recurring theme through much of what we hear, is this ability to adjust. So, you know, if your plan is off the rails, if the markets are, are rough, if something goes wrong, then that retiree can adjust. Now, it might be a slow adjustment, and that's a place where the financial planner can really step in and be useful for that retiree. 
And another thing that we're going to see throughout, he he talked about the model of the retirement hatchet. This is a model that Derek Tharp and Michael Kitsis came up with. It's an American model, but it fits in just well in Canada. And this is the idea that for those who can afford to do it, you would draw down your portfolio, delay your CPP, delay your OAS. I know that's a less popular decision. Um, and they only talk about Social Security here. But essentially, you would draw down your portfolio and then maximize those fully indexed guaranteed sources of income with that longevity protection. And he also uh, showed a model in which we think about have people have enough resources and that essentially savings continues in your early years of retirement. Now, it doesn't really mean savings as in you're not taking your um, employment income, but reinvesting investment returns so that you can match inflation. This was a, a good model where really savings does continue then in those early years of retirement to offset that inflation that's going to hurt you, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Okay, we then rolled into our breakout rooms and the breakout rooms are always such a challenge at these sessions because you want to go to everything. And I found out later on that I did miss what was probably a really good session in this first set of breakout rooms. Anyways, such is life. So I sat in the um, professional practice breakout room, and this was about sort of modeling uh, tools for financial planners to use. So the first session that we sat in here was with uh, Michael Gamet from Texas Tech, whose co-authors were David Blanchette and Shi Sun. I sat with uh, Shi through this session, but it was Michael presenting. Um, and David Blanchette, a lot of you will recognize, he's a very well-known uh, retirement researcher. He used to be at Morningstar, now at uh, PGM, which is part of the Prudential Group. If you don't follow on LinkedIn, he's worth following on LinkedIn. He produces a boatload of research. Um, so anyways... Um, Michael talked about, and this is interesting. So I tweeted about this, the data set here. So an insurer, an unnamed insurer, was uh, willing to provide uh, information about 220,000 variable annuity contracts. We don't really have variable annuity contracts in Canada, uh, kind of when you do a, a seg fund with a GMWB component. Um, but you can think of this kind of like seg fund sales. And what the the idea was, and it's an interesting data set. I don't know that the conclusions were there necessarily around what he was looking to demonstrate, but uh, looking to make a match between how an advisor was compensated. So when, when we had front-loaded heaped commissions or long trailing commissions, did that change how the advisor um, recommended equity or not? And again, I didn't see an overwhelming conclusion one way or the other here. Um, the overwhelming conclusion was that the heaped commission uh, numbers were uh, like through the roof, uh, an order of magnitude larger than the uh, than any sort of trailing commission preference. So no surprise here. Um, and I feel like they, they just got this data set and there was another, there was a poster that was based on the same data set. So I think that we're going to see a lot more um, numbers come out of this. I'll be watching uh, Michael and David and she's research out of this. Uh, we then rolled into a presentation from Stuart Heckman, who is at uh, Kansas State University. And this was working on, um, and I've seen a lot of, I'm going to say, iffy uh, research around this, this idea of like an advisor alpha, how do we present the value that the advisor brings? And Stuart said, look, we have to have a, a proper way to represent this. And this is really in its infancy, but the idea that we can bring the value of that financial planner and show how that actually quantifies for the client. So Stu actually started off with the idea that we should think about health outcomes overall here. And by health, this is physical, mental, emotional well-being, the whole picture of health, not just physical health. So the idea here would be that engaging with a financial planner should improve your health outcomes. And I think that's a good way to look at it. And if we start to think about it that way, that gives us some quantifiable metrics. That is, your health outcomes are X today, and we fast forward a few years after dealing with a financial planner, your health outcomes should be better. Now, I don't know, they're going to have to um, figure out how to remove age effects from that. So this will be interesting. And uh, the final breakout room presentation was uh, Sarah Stolberg-Berkowitz. And um, Sarah talked about models of divorce. Uh, this actually mirrored something we heard way back in season one, again, with uh, 
with Jeff McCartney. Um, Jeff is a certified divorce financial specialist, and she talked about sort of three models of divorce, the traditional adversarial model, you know, both parties hire a lawyer and the lawyers fight it out at great cost, a mediative model where both parties use one mediator to arrange an outcome or what her preference was, um, was the collaborative model. And in a collaborative model, both hire, both parties do hire a lawyer to work together. And this is something available in Canada. We absolutely have um, these collaborative divorce specialists in Canada. I know a couple in Edmonton, actually. And the idea here would be that you're not using the courts, but you're still using that third party legal representation. And Sarah talked about her role as the sort of financial advisor brought into these collaborative discussions um, and really an increasing awareness by both clients and lawyers that the lawyers don't know everything about the financial side of the house. So she talked about income modeling, tax planning, uh, financial characteristics of assets and so forth, or tax characteristics of assets. Okay, um, we then rolled back into uh, the main room and we had a presentation here um, and I was surprised at this. I thought this was going to be sort of like your typical fund manager presentation. Um, we had Dan Hunt, who's on the portfolio management side at uh, Morgan Stanley, so big U.S. firm, obviously. And he's had a pretty good, like I was surprised again at the, the depth of uh, thoughts here coming from, you know, what you traditionally see from fund managers. And he talked about um, retirement calculators versus real needs and sort of wrestling with this from a practitioner perspective. Um, the thing that he talked about that I really appreciated, I talk about this in class as well, for those that have done their financial planning classes with me, is this idea of using overly conservative projections. So um, he said, like, fine, you know, people want to be conservative. They say, I'm going to be conservative to make sure my client saves enough. But the point is, or be conservative, you know, with both the retirement income needs and with uh, investment projections. But the point he made here is that that does hurt. Being overly conservative causes other longer term problems. Notably, it might cause somebody to, you know, not set aside enough for their kids' educations or to not buy the right kind of insurance or to not pay off debt quickly enough. So it causes other adverse outcomes. And the point here is use the right figures. Don't just be conservative based on some idea that this is how you should approach things. Okay. We then rolled into our second set of uh, breakouts. And once again, um, I probably missed out. Um, the breakout that I didn't attend here mostly dealt with student finances. So there were, there were uh, two sessions here based on um, student finances. And it's a, this is a big difference in the United States versus Canada. So we didn't, I didn't go to those. Um, I did then, oh, sorry, before the uh, breakout, I apologize. There was one more session. And this was a session um, on uh, women in financial planning. Um, as I understand it, one of the presenters couldn't attend due to COVID. So, you know, not to overlook it at these conferences, but a lot of birds flying over here, sort of swallows maybe. Um, but anyways, we had, uh, yeah, Charlie Chen, uh, Sarah Acevedo is very well known. Sarah's a sort of um, rising star, top 40, under 40, all this kind of stuff. And she shows up on a lot of podcasts. If you ever get the chance to listen to any podcast that Sarah's on, strongly recommended. Um, Vicki Badelsmith, and you've heard me talk about Vicki here previously on this podcast. Um, Vicki has uh, a lot of research related to women's issues in financial planning, and she's been doing that research for 30 plus years, well worth following. And then Kate Healy, who's staff at CFE board as well. And um, a couple interesting comments here. So Sarah, Sarah's research is not um, primarily in women's issues, um, but, and she's at, uh, the, uh, Texas Tech. Yeah, she's the head of the financial planning department at Texas Tech. And she talked about, and this is something that showed up again a couple times at the conference, uh, the idea that part of the value that financial planners bring is in the collision of uh, ideas. And we actually heard this in Stuart's presentation as well, and Stu Heckman's presentation about the value of financial planning. And she said a lot of the value here is simply the idea that a, a client sits down with a financial planner and the, the client throws ideas and the financial planner throws ideas. And out of that collision of ideas, we get a better set of financial planning outcomes. I thought this was really good framing for the overall value of the presentation. I don't know how you quantify that. The problem is you have to look at um, the discussion 
without that. So what does the client come up with on their own? And then you have to find some way to A-B test that. What does the client come up with when they're sitting across from the financial planner? And it's not even to say the financial planner necessarily brings the best ideas, but rather that that collaboration leads us to um, some sort of uh, better outcomes. Um, the other curious thing here, um, so Kate heads up diversity and inclusion um, initiatives at the at CFP board, and she's been involved in this for a long time. And she made a comment. She said, there's lots of advisors out there who just don't want to work with women. And I found this interesting. I don't know if that represents anybody who's watching or listening, but I think it's worth asking, do you have a preference for um, not working with women? She did say, if you do, fine sort of own it and you know you should build your practice accordingly she didn't want to tell people how to run their businesses i just think it's something worth thinking about if you know if you prefer not to then you prefer not to um and then if you have women clients are they well served by dealing with you so that was um quite good so then we rolled into breakouts sorry about that and yes the breakouts here so i had the uh some of you will know Michael Finke. Michael's a well-known um, retirement researcher, and um, he had a paper that was also co-authored with Dave Planchette, um, and this was on um, creating defaults in defined contribution pension plans, and lots of discussion here on sort of the benefit of defaults. This goes to nudge theory and so forth, but I, I had a, a thought come out of this and the the survey data all and i haven't asked michael this question there was not enough time for all the questions at the end of the session which is good um, but the survey data that he brought back showed that roughly half of defined contributions so this would be you know in the us 401k but in canada group rsp or um, any sort of uh, defined contribution pension dpsp dc whatever you have um, that half of participants would prefer a mix of pension and investments versus just a straight pension or just a straight investment mix going into retirement. And I thought, okay, what if then with my client at RIF time, so I have a client now who's uh, sometime between 65 and 71, maybe even younger, and they have a RIF. And what if we asked this question? What if we just framed it like this? We said, what percentage of your RIF do you want invested? And what percentage of your RIF do you want to turn into a pension? And we can use that conversation then to guide the annuity discussion. So instead of just saying we're going to roll the whole RSP over into the RIF, maybe think about this. What if you asked, you know, what percentage do you want invested and what percentage do you want annuitized or pensionized? And you can very much normalize that annuity conversation that way. So I thought that that might be a useful approach. I'm going to you know, broach this with some other financial planners, or maybe you're doing that already. I'd be interested to see if anybody's already having that conversation. Okay. And the next presentation in there was uh, James Delilio. And uh, James talked about the idea that there is, and he was an interesting researcher, used R to see if there was a solution for, so he used Python. I can't remember. There are Python. And he asked, is there a solution, an actual um, heuristic or rule of thumb solution for tax sequencing in retirement? So, you know, there's this sort of traditional approach that you take your taxable dollars first and then your tax deferred dollars and then tax free dollars last. So, you know, non-reg, then RSP or RIF or whatever, and wrap up with TFSA. And I, I, I think most financial planners are doing better than that or are actually customizing it, entering the data into their financial planning software and coming to a solution that's client appropriate. Um, anyways, he said, like, tax deferral is not always the best, and I agree with that. And he was looking for um, an, an R-based sort of formula where you could plug this in. And curiously, he said, when you do this with a client who has sort of just enough, when you have a client who has too much assets for retirement, it's not terribly hard to model. And the client who has not enough, that's modeling he hasn't got to yet, if I recall correctly. But for the client who has just enough, he actually couldn't get the software to solve. Now, I had a discussion at, at dinner that night about this, dinner last night about this, and the fellow I talked this over with, he's in San Francisco, very involved in the tech community. And he said, this is a solvable problem, but 
that are Python are not the right way to do it, that you need to engage a machine learning algorithm. So that could very well be the case. I'm not knowledgeable enough to know that, but this fellow did seem to really know. So I'm going to take that at face value. Okay, and the last session that I attended then um, was David Blanchett uh, talking about, again, the optimal retirement income strategy. And again, David, a well-respected, well-known researcher. And I again, this is something that I've talked about in class. And he said, what we should be thinking about here, now there's something new here, something I, I have not thought about before. He talked about needs, perfect. So paying the rent, buying groceries, or paying the mortgage, buying groceries, you know, whatever gets categorized as needs. And there would be some variability there. He wasn't presenting needs as an absolute. Um, he didn't explicitly say it, but when questions came up about what's a need, there was this idea that a need would be somewhat variable from one client to another. And then wants, so wants would be most of your discretionary spending. So um, you know, let's say gifts for the grandkids or vacations or hobbies. And then he talked about wishes. And wishes, to me, sounds kind of like self-actualization on Maslow's Pyramid, this idea that we have things that, you know, if I really had enough money, I would do this. And this might be maybe setting up your own foundation, for example. Um, this might be something beyond ordinary gift. This might be helping the, the grandkids or kids maybe to uh, make a housing purchase. So really stretching those things where if you said, if I had a lot of money, what would I do? This might be, you know, buying that Mercedes you've always wanted or buying the Porsche you've always wanted. Who knows? Um, and he talked about matching income to those. So thinking about, you know, this is the income to match your um, your needs. And then this is the income to match your wants. And this is the stuff to match your wishes. And, you know, arguably um, matching then fixed income to needs and variable income to everything else. So, um, again, good presentation. So, and again, David is well worth following. He's thinking about retirement planning problems in, in a much broader sense than any of us ever will. I uh, went for dinner last night with a bunch of folks um, from the CFP board, from the Kansas State University financial planning uh, programs. And uh, this was good. The, the CFP board, well, I'm going to say the conversation um, focused quite a bit. They were interested in that because in the Canadian perspective on financial advisor and financial planner title protection. And of course, there's uh, now a well-documented Global Mail article about this, about how um, we haven't really had, I'm going to say, any sort of discretion. Every program, I believe, in Ontario that's applied for either financial advisor, financial planner status has been approved. And lots of other questions here. You know, why those two titles? Um, are there other title restrictions in place? all stuff that was really in the initial consultation process that first seven or eight years of consultation before the legislation came about. So um, there is, and the reason they asked about this is because the um, FPA, the reason that the other financial planners at the table asked about this was because the FPA here in the US has announced as part of its uh, strategic objectives, uh, the idea that they want to pursue financial advisor and financial title protection. Um, and, you know, I find this interesting. I've just been named onto the stakeholder committee for FISRA dealing with this issue. And I'm curious to see how this all works out. So I, I don't know. Um, I was, I, I certainly did not uh, say that this was, and I like the idea. Some of you will know this, that you know, I really did like the idea. I just think the implementation hasn't been great. And it's that caution of, you know, be careful what you wish for. Okay, um, I'm off to the session today too now. And I think it'll be another great day. I always enjoy this conference. I just get to see the, the thought processes that go into um, the research around financial planning. And again, just nice to know that this research is happening, that people smarter than me are thinking about these problems and coming up with ways to solve them. This is stuff that will show up in practice. And we do see this. We see the ideas that are presented by folks like uh, David or Stuart um, or... Um, Vicky that show up really in practice, you know, usually three, four, five years after the fact, but it's there. Hey, good morning. It's Jason again here, uh, reporting live from the, I guess, reporting recorded. I don't know how that works. Um, from 
the uh, CFP Board Academic Research Colloquium. Uh, yesterday was day two, just a short conference this time around. Uh, there was, um, they did some things a little bit different here than they previously done. They normally have uh, fewer papers presented in each breakout session. And I think just coming on the heels of COVID, it might've been harder to get, they normally do uh, either two and a half or three days. And I think it might have been harder to get that full content together. The other thing is in the past, FP Canada has often done either a Canada Day event or a Canada Day half event to go along with it. So two really good days of learning, though, and uh, great exposure to a whole bunch of ideas. So I always enjoy this. And again, now you can check out my Twitter feed, too. If I know you have to go back a little bit, but if you look for the hashtag, if you look at my Twitter feed, uh, Jason Watt at Jason Watt BCC, and you look for the hashtag CFPARC, CFP Academic Research Colloquium, uh, you'll find it there. So uh, day two, again, started off with messaging from the CFP board. Um, our So Matt Gorin is their director of research at the center, which is sort of their learning arm. And then uh, Matt Gorin is the director of knowledge for practice, CFP board, Center for Financial Planning, and Mike Kodakota is the head of research. These are both CFPs with PhDs in financial planning, like super impressive. Mike, I know I, I've met him at previous events, and uh, he and I were at the Financial Therapy Association conference as well. Um, heavy overlap with the CFP board and volunteers and presenters and so forth with that Financial Therapy Association conference, which I'm going to get to with a question uh, or comment later on here. Mike, I you know gave the normal introduction, but he made the comment here, and this came from another presenter, um, Jimmy. I don't know who Jimmy is. This is there's some familiarity that sometimes happens here, um, but anyways, uh, apparently Jimmy, who's another one of the uh, sort of active volunteers here, said, uh, "We're not in the returns business. We're in the happiness business," and this really shows the I think shift in mindset, even how papers are presented at this session. When I first started coming here six years ago, uh, there was a, a healthy dose, let's say, of investment-oriented papers, sort of, you know, managing sequence of returns risk or active versus passive management or that kind of thing, stuff that could have been at a CFA conference, but, you know, worked here as well. And there was also a lot of financial planning research. Uh, this time around, I would say that there's been very little. There was one session that had a bunch of uh, investment stuff. I actually, I, I intended to go do it, but I uh, stumbled into the wrong room and the session was super engaging. So I just stayed for the wrong session. So anyways, the focus here has really shifted over to very much a behavioral focus and more about that later on, not just behavior. I, I want to talk about a couple of things here that came up in the um, practitioner session later on. So our opening speaker, the keynote, and she was awesome, was uh, Dr. Miranda Ryder. And she commented in her, so she spoke on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I really like this topic. Um, you know, this is something that I don't think that we're paying as much attention to in Canada, but I want to point to, you know, there are some groups now working towards uh more awarenesses on the Indigenous front in Canada. Uh, there's the Indigenous Finance Collective, um, which is a sort of informal group of folks. Um, if you're in that community, if you're if you're an Indigenous financial planner yourself and you're looking to connect there, I can connect you with the folks from the Indigenous Finance Collective. They're a pretty loose organization right now. Um, as I understand it, they're doing a sort of monthly Zoom call and, um, you know, great work in this front. So anyways, uh, Dr. Ryder, commented that when she initially applied to be a PhD student, it's been, I think about a decade ago, I think she said 2014 maybe, um, she sort of, you know, she listed two fairly technical topics, you have to choose three topics. And her third topic, she thought, well, I'm going to put it in there and see what happens. I don't know if people will like it, but she's, she talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion as her third possible topic of research. And this has really become her home. And she presented a lot of research here and a good mix again of it really was a survey it wasn't like she had a specific paper she was presenting um, but a sort of survey of research and the one comment that really uh, struck me here was she showed like all the demographic numbers and so forth and as an example a research group that did not include her if i recall correctly looked at about 1360 pictures of advisors 
on websites at the 73 biggest financial advisory firms. And the pictures of advisors in total featured uh, 1,360 different advisors. And uh, one of those was a black woman. And if we say that representation matters, well, you know, what's the messaging there? So, you know, think about that for your own website. If you're trying to sort of have a diverse message, and I know if you're a single shop advisor and you're like me, a white guy, well, what do you do? And that's where there might be other ways to promote that diversity. But if you're looking to, you know, hire a firm that looks more like your client base, really, I think that's something to think about. And I, I think that we obviously, you know, a small shop, you can have like a perfect sample of uh, representation. And that being said, though, there are ways to um, get that message out. And if it's something you struggle with, maybe that's there. There are diversity consultants out there, for example. You know, I have, I, I'll give a plug here to my friend David Plamondon. David runs a shop in Edmonton that specializes in helping uh, firms come to. Uh, better diversity practices, helps with awareness there. And I can introduce you to David. His uh, shop is Paymetaway, and he does workshops for companies big and small. So um, really good session. And she's a great speaker. Like I thought this was probably the best public presentation in terms of body language. She really, she put on a clinic in how to communicate. And I think if you're going to have a message like this, that's going to be well received by say the you know the white male audience who might otherwise feel threatened uh this uh delivery was uh top notch and i don't know if that's fair to say or not but but she was a uh, just a great speaker so anyways uh dr moran brand writer and she is at uh, texas tech now on faculty there okay uh that took us into the uh, breakout sessions so I sat in breakout sessions concerning home ownership, and it was interesting because, well, uh, this is such a big deal in Canada today, and this is something that we talked about at the IAFP conference back in September, October. Here, we looked at the US experience and interestingly, the Australian experience. So we had uh, Katsilia Loibel, and she talked about um, and this was interesting. I don't think it's a surprise. And a lot of research like this, um, you sort of posit a theory that's based in, let's say, common sense. And then you say, does it actually hold up? Is this true? Or are we just making an assumption that doesn't make any sense here? And uh, her presentation dealt with home equity access. So the question here is people get really sick and they um, have home equity debt and then they use their home equity further at the time of illness and sorry, the light's fighting with me a little bit right now. The sun hasn't quite come up yet. We got another 20 minutes or so until sunrise. And then does that lead to a second set of post-shock health outcomes? And not surprisingly, it did. There was a lot of other interesting research here. You have to kind of get to baseline data. And interestingly, she showed that a decline in your house price index, so house price index is kind of like consumer price index, but for housing, we have it in Canada, we use HPI in sort of local markets. And the indication here was that house price index declines. So just, you know, the, like the housing market in Toronto drops by 10% in a given time frame. Well, that also by itself triggers negative health shocks. So people are more likely to have negative health events when that home price declines. Interesting, sort of something, you know, outside of your control, you can't really do anything about it but it does have other effects other than just strictly financial. Uh, the next presentation, this has to be interesting to Canadians. I tweeted about this and I haven't given away the answer yet, um, but uh, he flashed up a slide here that showed you know, heavy resource concentration and then leading to retirees using home rental unit ownership at a sort of small scale something like 40%, uh, maybe 80%, sorry, of retirees who owned homes as rental units in order to boost yield in retirement. And it was Australia he was talking about, it was not Canada. So anyways, we talked about sort of low rates driving some of this, um, also driving riskier pushes to more dividend producing stocks. So um, super interesting that way. And just lots of stuff in his paper. And his paper, I'm going to um, link to it here. He updates it quarterly, actually, based on new data. 
And I, I really thought this was good. I talked uh, a little bit after the session with Antonio, and I think it's a it's a good corollary for the Canadian market to see what uh, what drives that. We talked a little bit after the session about regulation. I have this theory that one of the reasons that people go to housing is because at like 60, whether this is good or not, at 60, you can leverage. You can leverage to the hilt. You can you know, go CMHC will support you at 60 to go and borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a house. But, you know, try taking a 60-year-old client into hundreds of thousands of dollars of leverage with, you know, 10% down or whatever the case is, and it just doesn't work. And essentially, it's a, you know, no no real margin in there. You know, if you can support the, the cash flow, you're going to be there for a while. So, you know, that maybe the unregulated um, real estate space. And I guess Australia is not much different in that space. Okay, uh, the next presenter was actually one of the folks I had dinner with uh, the night before. Uh, this was uh, Tim Todd. He is a, he's got everything. Like the guy's crazy. He's uh, He teaches tax law at Liberty University. He's super active with the, the CFP board. Uh, just like, brilliant guy although he's a penguins fan um and I, I didn't know the oilers had beaten the penguins the night before until i checked the scores after his session so failed to get my dig in there um but anyways the question then was about why do people borrow inefficiently and he sort of used two kinds of lending here to look at this so we know that people borrow money on inefficient uh, bases so we talked about using high interest debt versus low interest debt. And he focused on two kinds of low interest debt, one being the home equity line of credit. So what drives people to use home equity line of credit? And the answer was really having it available. There was not a linkage here between competency or knowledge. And oh, there you look, you can see the Washington Monument off in the background today. You couldn't see it yesterday, but there it is. So anyways, uh, yeah, so it's that competency has no impact there. So it's really, do I have home equity line of credit? I'm going to use it. Uh, whereas another kind of lending that was similar is, and we don't have this in a structured way in Canada. These are not margin loans, to be clear, but these are securities-based lending. So the idea here is you would have, you know, a non, although there are some differences in the US, uh, but I'm going to say a non-registered portfolio with, you know, a half million dollars of stock in it, and you just use that as collateral. You borrow maybe $300,000 using that, sort of similar to taking out a home equity line of credit with a 60% loan to value, and you use that money. And he commented, he's, you know, he's a tax guy first and foremost, he said, this is essentially a tax efficient way of accessing equity. It is a little bit like leveraging a life insurance cash value. Um, and he commented there, that people who are doing that, that less common type of lending, that does tend to have a link to competency and financial knowledge and so forth. So the question there was really what drives people to make, I'm gonna say less efficient lending decisions and you know, home equity line of credit, no real link to knowledge there, more unusual tools, the securities-based lending, that one relatively um, linked to, to knowledge. Okay. Oh, and sorry, the one other thing I want to mention in Tim's presentation, um, and this is a very common concept you hear here at the sessions, is the idea of bounded rationality. So bounded rationality sort of says, look, we acknowledge that people aren't going to be perfectly efficient in their decisions, but on the whole, we know that, you know, there's the sort of optimal decision, and then there's going to be a spread around that optimal decision. So what sort of drives people within that spread. That is, people aren't doing completely wacky things. You're not sort of, I don't know, deliberately taking out $300,000 loans using your credit card, or if you are, you're so far outside of the sort of norm that that doesn't really count, or there's you know, some unusual explanation for it. But it wouldn't be something that happens so often that it sort of affects that rational set of decisions, we'll say. Okay. Uh, yeah, then we rolled back into the uh, the main room and uh, we had a brief address from uh, Camilla Elliott who's currently the CFP board chair and then we rolled into another uh, sponsor presentation and again this was a really good sponsor presentation this was uh, Lee Davidson from Morningstar and he um, showed a couple of interesting stats here so uh, 700 so he's Morningstar US and he said as of today 
Uh, there are 700,000 different investment products available to the U.S. retail investor. 700,000. So that is a paradox of choice problem. And I know paradox of choice has been, has been somewhat uh, challenged, but that's too much. Hey, I'm going to say that nobody needs 700,000 choices for anything. The other thing he commented on here, he showed some data that showed that out of that universe of investing, out of the funds available, I'm going to say funds here, that we have an average fee of 0.6%. So the sort of average fee paid by U.S. investors is 0.6% or 60 basis points. And the average underperformance between indexes and um, management is 0.62%. So Bill Sharp, uh, that's the arithmetic of active management right there. I thought that was super interesting. And he really uh, talked about the idea of direct investing, uh, sort of eating the rest of the market. He showed that direct investing, which we don't have in Canada yet, and we may not get for some time. I know uh, Jason Pereira, for example, is not very optimistic about this. But essentially, direct investing is where you say, here's my investment profile. And in the US now, for as little as 5000 so an investor with a little $5,000 can access a direct investing profile which is basically where you have individual securities that match your profile. So you can build around risk here, you can build around ESG, you can build around other preferences, but you get a sort of custom built mutual fund that's, and mutual fund is not even the right word, because it's individual securities that really form that basket. And if you want to hear um, an example of where individual securities can help, with uh, more effective management, look back to the interview with Marshall McAllister in season four, where he talked about tax gain harvesting, taking your biggest gainers and donating to charity, wiping out the capital gain. Uh, tax loss harvesting is easier with individual securities, that is taking capital losses and getting rid of those at the end of the year. So there are some real advantages here. And I wonder if anybody will be able to crack that nut in Canada. He talked about lots of consolidation here. He talked about uh, machine learning or other sort of similar models becoming more common in the US. So really pointing to the future of investment management here and we'll see if Canada can keep pace. Okay, um, we then had the practitioner implications panel. This is something that CFP board always does here. And they had uh, four practitioners. And I'm gonna say it was really three practitioners and a consultant to practitioners. So uh, Mary Bell Carlson, who uh, you can follow on Twitter, she's super active there. Um, Ramel Strong, um, I just saw Ramel actually at the uh, Financial Therapy Association conference, um, and he's a past chair of that organization. Sonia Luter, who is also a past chair of the Financial Therapy Association. Um, you might know her as well as Sonia Britt. I've talked about her, I think back in season one, when Tanya and Ryan and I talked about this, we talked about one of Sonia Britt's papers and uh, Joe Getz. And so Sonia is a consultant to advisors um, who want to have a more, I'm going to say, therapy-informed practice. And uh, Joe Getz, he runs a uh, financial planning shop in the U.S., but he also runs a lab at University of Georgia where they do free financial planning uh, to give students access to the opportunity to do financial planning for clients and then uh, sort of build their competency that way. And they deal with students and low-income members of the community. So a, an early groundbreaker in that pro bono realm and also a place where a lot of experimental financial planning gets done. Super interesting. But the thing that I want to highlight here, there was two things actually I want to highlight out of this session. The first is uh, Joe specifically talked about having a director of financial planning research. So how do you know what's happening out there in the world of financial planning? Is somebody in your firm reading the journal of financial planning, financial planning review, maybe uh, some of the consumer affairs publications and bringing that information over to the firm? Because there is lots of stuff happening here. You know, the, the housing paper I just talked about will be a good example of this. So what's happening in terms of keeping your firm in touch or do you have some other way to access that whether it be a service you can access where somebody is giving you the latest and greatest and joe said he has sort of become that for the i want to say 17 financial planners at his firm it's not realistic that everybody's going to read those two journals or journal financial therapy of course on a regular basis 
Um, and the other uh, comment that came out here, and by the way, if you're interested in doing that and you want to learn how to do that, you can reach out to me and I can show you how to become the director of financial planning research at not a huge expenditure. All right. So the other comment that came up here, and this was about the sort of future of financial planning. And I just found it interesting that this there's this heavy overlap to Financial Therapy Association. So I asked the question about, is Financial Therapy Association the future of financial planning? And Ramel, who's very active with that organization, said, he actually led with no. He said no and yes. And I think it's a good comment here that we still have to be very careful as financial planners not to wander too much into financial therapy. And especially in the U.S., this is well delineated. Okay, so we had uh, then a set of breakouts and uh, the first breakout here was discussion about the increase in the proportion of households with heavy financial obligations so from 2016 to 2019 a data set showed that the the presenters and this was led by a uh, associate professor from ksu kong rong Fu yang and uh Professor Yang pointed out that um, she she did all kinds of demographic breakdowns of what kinds of households saw increases. She chose 40%. She said, we're going to look at 40% of income uh, going to, I'm going to say needs. So you, you know, you cross over from say 35% of income going to needs to 45% of income going to needs. That puts you into that heavy burden category. And it's a, an arbitrary number. Um, this is, again, something we're seeing here is, you know, what should that number be? There's not really a great indication there. And she acknowledged that was an arbitrary number, but they had to use a number. So the uh, the thing that I took away from this, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, was that she showed that for most households, I think maybe it was all households surveyed, that financial literacy, um, and I she might have used financial capacity here, but financial literacy that is, knowing how financial concepts work did not make a difference in whether or not your household moved from, you know, 35% of income going to needs to 45% of income going to needs. The gist of it was that basically, if you could afford a mistake, then it's not a mistake. So her actual quote was, a mistake is not a mistake if you can afford it. And I thought this was interesting. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of financial literacy efforts are um, somewhat fruitless. So... I don't know. It's uh, now maybe just not effective how we're doing it. Maybe we're not measuring it right. I don't know. But the the comment here was that as we're doing it right now, financial literacy is not making a difference for households that have sort of just enough. As soon as something goes wrong, you no longer have just enough, and it doesn't matter how much you know. For households that had a surplus, great, but it wasn't financial literacy that made the difference there. Households that were really good financially could weather that shock, and therefore, you know, a mistake is not a mistake. Um, the last presentation that I actually um, attended here, and this is kind of how the session goes, is there was the doctoral sessions right at the end. These are super nerdy, um, really into hardcore stats, and I had to make a couple phone calls here. So the last session that I got to attend here in its full was um, a regtech session, so regulatory technology. And this was where we looked at the impacts of regulation on the implementation of technology. Uh, the lead researcher here was Ben uh, Charon Wong. Um, I followed Ben on Twitter now. Seems like a super interesting guy. He said, don't judge him too much by his Twitter profile. But uh, he's at National University of Singapore. And he commented that as and he's you know he's speaking with the SEC. He talks with Finra. He talks with big financial regulators, um, and he commented that as the burden on firms gets higher, bigger firms have a have an, a recruiting advantage because bigger firms have an easier time adjusting to uh, more onerous regulation. The other thing he commented on here. And he showed this, that firms are willing to put up with bad technology. And I think that some folks dealing in the Canadian insurance space might appreciate this. So firms will just put up with bad technology and they'll just grin and bear it until regulation forces them to change. So we had a discussion offline afterwards, uh, Ben and I did, um, and it was about 
how can firms sort of be encouraged to adopt early? And he said it is possible that regulators can take a softer approach to this, that instead of going and changing regulation and forcing change across the board, that it's possible that you get, you know, implementation by a few leaders, and that kind of compels other firms to come along. And that that is something that regulators could potentially lead in without having to drag everybody necessarily kicking and screaming. But there was a lot of evidence here that firms will accommodate, I'm going to say, technology packages, they'll talk to each other, outdated technology, unsecure technology, and just have all kinds of, um, I'm going to say, uh, cobbled together solutions until they're forced to make a change, until some regulation happens. And the regulation here in the United States that came about uh, required more, I'm going to say, extensive reporting by firms as to their members' Uh, potential transgression transgressions and a lot of them had to adopt uh, a whole new technology package to catch that so i again as i always do i really um had just a ton of learning at this session great to see all the different research that's happening out here oh and that's the other thing i want to mention sorry that i said i would get to is in the practitioner implications panel and this is something that mirrors a lot of what i hear at the financial planning association of canada so in the practitioner implications panel there was also a discussion about evidence-based financial planning and about how far we are yet from being able to do evidence-based recommendations in lots of areas so again this is something aspirational is this idea of having a large enough knowledge base of best practices supported by research to say, you know, in this case, you know, client A should be drawing down their tax deferred accounts first in retirement, or client B should be drawing down their, you know, taxable accounts first in retirement, or whatever it happens to be, or client A should be paying off student loan debt, while client B should be paying off mortgage debt first. And those things are not based on sort of anecdote and, you know, 30 years of experience. Those things should be based on look, I've got this paper from this group of researchers. It shows this is what is most likely to lead to optimal outcomes. This client fits that portfolio. So anyways, um, that's sort of the goal of these sessions is to, to get us to the point where the recommendations that practitioners are making are grounded in sound theory. So anyways, um, highly recommended. This These sessions are, are always worth coming to. If I think it's possible we might not see um, this conference again in 2023, there's kind of a weird timing issue. I think that they're probably looking at the spring of 2024. We'll see. I don't know. But anyways, um, if you are sort of inclined to see what's happening in terms of, let's say, uh, the future of this industry, get to this conference at least once. Um, it's well worth attending. Always lots of good value here. And you'll be impressed with the, the minds that are um, leading the uh, charge to, I'm going to say, professionalize financial planning and uh, really give it some more academic rigor. So thanks very much and uh, enjoy your continued studies. Oh, I'll do a number right now too. So uh, the number for today's episode is five. The number for today's episode is five. If you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, so I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, you start your quiz, 
and you're just going to go through the whole thing and then at the end of it you'll be able to see your certifications so we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products we bring this up and we click on wall certificate and that's going to give me the ce certificate i need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of the learning opportunity they might not have known about. 